invite you to, talk, uh, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 117. Psalm 117. And if you find it in your pew Bible, if you could call out the page number that it's on, it would be great help to anybody who might be looking for it, but they don't know precisely where it is. 605, 605. So page 605 in your pew Bibles. I should probably, it would solve that problem if I would just preach from a pew Bible, but this is mine and I love it. So, uh, you know, so I just ask for help whenever that, that time comes. Psalm 117. It is all of two verses long, so I'll read it. It won't take me very long. Praise the Lord. That's praise Yahweh. All nations extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of Yahweh endures forever. Praise Yahweh, perhaps better known as Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. There's a reality I want you to keep front and center for Psalm 117. It is the shortest psalm in all of the Psalter. Very easy to memorize, and that's why later we're going to sing it. Because it doesn't take long to read and it doesn't take long to sing. It's easy to, uh, just as Psalm 134, only a bit longer than this one. Uh, Psalm 117, very easy uh, to master. And there's a lot packed into this psalm. If you're looking at these two verses and you're wondering, how on earth is Pastor Brian going to get a good 30-minute sermon out of this? Don't fear. Everything's under control. (laughs) (laughs) amen yes amen so the 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 kind of the banner that i want you to see that that waves over this entire psalm and if you're if you're taking sermon notes if that's if that's your style then you can write this down the whole world has always been the plan the whole world has always been the plan there is an invitation in this psalm you saw it in the very first verse, an invitation to all nations to worship Yahweh. Now that should strike you as a bit odd. Yahweh is the covenant name of God given to Israel and not Israel, all nations. The Hebrew word is goyim. Uh, uh, some translations translate it foreigners because that is literally what it, it's, it's talking about Gentiles. So you have Israel, you have not Israel. This is Praise Yahweh, all not Israel. In other words, join together with, well, with the Jews, with those who know God, with those who are in covenant with them. Praise Him, all you goyim. Extol Him, all you peoples or tribes or families. Why? Why should the nations praise the Lord? Look at verse 2. Here's the reason. There are two reasons, actually. Number one, great is His steadfast love toward us. Great is His, you might know the Hebrew word is chesed. Okay, His his steadfast love. I love uh, O. Palmer Robertson always translates it His covenant love toward us. Um, Merciful kindness is what the King James often does with it. Not just great is this love of God, this covenant love, this steadfast, immovable love, but it's great toward us. Right? So, so think of what's being said here. These are the covenant people of God, Israel, calling out to the nations. Come and worship Yahweh, for great is His steadfast love toward us. Why? Look at the rest of verse 2. 
Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of Yahweh endures forever. Some translations have the truth of Yahweh endures forever. More on that in a moment. But between the steadfast love and the faithfulness or truth of the Lord, we sing hallelujah. And so the psalm closes with praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. So this call goes out to all the nations. And the first motivation that I told you is the chesed of the Lord is great toward us, the steadfast love. Second motivation is the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And this word literally means firmness or steadiness. So that's why some translations handle it faithfulness. Some translations will say truth. Because either way, you're talking about the firm and steady promises of the Lord that He always, always, always keeps faithfulness. And they're always, always, always true. That's truth. So whether your translation, I mean, I think if you've got New King James or King James, it's going to say the truth of the Lord endures. I'm quite happy with either. Either one is great. But this is a call to praise God. And it goes out to all nations. Now, this is a point I made last Sunday, and I felt it was so important that I wanted to expand on it this morning. And when better to expand on the truth of God going out to all nations than Pentecost Sunday, right? And so this is the only Sunday, actually, that gets its very own banner. Uh, the, the, the idea is the, uh, uh, the Word of God coming down by the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, God speaking through His Word in the Scripture, uh, to his people, to the church, and then you notice that light at the bottom kind of shooting out. The idea is indeed that the gospel is going outside of our walls by God's word and spirit to all the nations. Now, I want to remind you of something I said last Sunday. There is a popular idea in some corners of evangelicalism that in the Old Testament, all God cared about was Israel as a nation, and he didn't care about the Gentiles. That's an idea that I want all of you to make sure you banish from your minds forever and ever. Amen. Okay? God has always been about the mission of spreading His glory to every nation. God has always been about the mission of His kingdom covering the world as the waters cover the seas. Some people believe that that mission will be accomplished a little bit now and kind of all at once when he returns. Others believe that most of the mission will be accomplished before Jesus returns. I happen to be in the second camp. But what's more important than those camps is that we understand that the Gentiles, the nations, the, the goyim in Hebrew, have always been part of the plan. I've got a couple of Old Testament examples for you. I think you're going to love them, okay? You know why? Because unless I'm mistaken, pretty much everyone in here is a Gentile of one sort or another. Okay? Lots of Gentiles in here. Biblically speaking, lots of foreigners. All right? And here we are, strangers to the covenant that have been brought in. So let's talk about that and get excited about it. You might remember the story of Jonah. You guys know Jonah. God calls him to preach to the Ninevites. That's important because the Ninevites are, and I want you to follow me closely here, Ninevites. They're not Jews. They are foreigners. They're bad ones. They're evil ones. A whole nation full of God-hating sinners, Nineveh was. And we all know that Jonah, when the Lord told him to go preach to Nineveh, what did Jonah say? No, thank you. <laughs> and turned and ran. We sometimes tend to think, at least I have a memory in the back of my head, maybe a Sunday school somewhere, 
that that's because he was scared of the Ninevites. Something like, no, Lord, don't make me be a missionary to those savages. They'll kill me. On the contrary, the text tells us that Jonah fled because he knew that God was merciful. And he, Jonah, hated those Ninevites. He knew that God was just the kind of God who would forgive them. And Jonah was right. They all repented from the royal courts to the slums. The whole city repents. Oh, Lord, let it be. And God accepts it. And Jonah's mad about it. (laughs) He goes and pouts under a tree. It's the part of the story we don't get to as much, but maybe another time. 2 Kings chapter 5, we read about this guy named Naaman, the Syrian. He is a, wait for it, a Syrian. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Okay? He gets healed by the ministry of Elisha the prophet. He's told to go bathe in the Jordan seven times to be healed of his leprosy. And at first he scoffs, that sounds dumb. And then he obeys and he is healed. You go to Luke 4, 27. Luke, uh, Jesus mentions this story in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, as to why uh, uh, he's not doing sort of miraculous works in the midst of these unbelieving scoffers. And Jesus says, you know, there were lepers in Israel. And instead, God chose to seek out and heal this Gentile. There were plenty of lepers in Israel that, it, that the prophet could have gone and healed. Instead, he went to a Gentile. And the very mention of that gets everybody real mad. In Exodus, there's a fellow named Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. We read that he was a priest of Midian, which is in Arabia. Okay? It's not part of, part of the bloodline of God's people. But what happens? In Exodus chapter 18, verse 8, this is so cool. Moses comes to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he preaches the gospel to him. Old Testament style. It's, the red, it's what we might call the Red Sea Gospel. He preaches the Red Sea Gospel to him. So Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them and how Yahweh had delivered them. So the Red Sea Wilderness Gospel, what happens? Verse 9, Jethro rejoices in it. Verse 10, Jethro blesses Yahweh. And verse 12, He worships. He brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with him. Now he's he's been brought in. You might remember last week I told you about the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10. She was taught by Solomon. She comes from far away to seek his wisdom. She hears about the glory of the kingdom that Yahweh has built through Solomon. And when the queen had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, cupbearers, burnt offerings that he offered, there was no more breath in her. It it took her breath away. She was in awe of what the God of Israel had done. And get this. Solomon built that temple, the temple of Jerusalem, with Gentiles in mind. It's so important, but I think sometimes in our reading, we, we, we skip over, we just miss it. 
The, the text in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 6, speaking of Solomon's dedication to the temple, he says, When a foreigner, when a Gentile, when a goyim who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house here from heaven, from your dwelling place, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. The nations have always been part of the plan. As you probably know, there was a place in the temple, the first and the second temple, called the Court of the Gentiles. There was a space carved out for them, it, yes, it was still separate from the Jews and from their worship, but God made a space called the court of the Gentiles precisely because He meant for Gentiles to be coming in and worshiping Him. More on that later. The Gentiles have always been part of the plan. If you need to be further convinced that this Psalm 117 reflects the heart of Jesus for all the nations, I will direct you to Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. So let's read that. Romans chapter 15. Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. You already, already should be thinking, right? The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. That's what we read in Psalm 117. Truthfulness, faithfulness. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. You see that both and? What God gave to the patriarchs, to Father Abraham, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it's written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Paul quotes Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And Paul is so pumped up about this glorious promise given to all nations, he, he overflows in a doxology. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Gentile, you mostly Gentile church in Rome, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul believed that the Jews were and are God's chosen people. Right? So I'm not saying that because the Gentiles and the nations have always been part of the plan, that the Jews were not God's chosen people. But what does it mean to be the chosen people? One theologian has observed that you can think of God choosing Israel like when a teacher calls a student up to the front of the class to solve a math problem. Okay? That student has been chosen. Right? Chosen to come forward, solve the math problem on the board. That student will either shine or flop, right? There will either be glory or shame. Being the chosen student might mean you get called up when you're prepared, you've done your homework, you're ready to go, and glory. Or you get called up when you're unprepared, and you're not ready, and you haven't been paying attention, and shame. But either way, you're the chosen student, right? The Jews, when they soared, it was glorious. They would make the other nations stagger in amazement 
What sort of God do they have? What sort of people are this? The Queen of Sheba, right? That was her reaction. She was breathless. That's what it means to be the chosen people on the good days. But Paul says that they were the chosen people. Do you remember back in in Romans 15, the first part? For the sake of the Gentiles. Christ was made a... a, uh, Can you go back up to the top, please? Sorry, that wasn't originally in there. Christ became a servant, okay? A servant. The word is uh, diakonos, so a, a servant, a minister, a deacon to the circumcision, to the Jews, born into the tribe of Judah, son of David, right? Promise can be traced back to Abraham. Christ is the fulfillment. Paul says he was made a servant in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Confirm them. Not throw them away or change them, to confirm them. And what is the content of the promise? In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Okay? So this is, this is a call. And remember how he ends, right? He ends with that benediction of hope. May the God of all hope give you all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope. So this call that goes out to the Gentiles is not a call, Gentiles, praise Yahweh, but we know you probably won't. No, Paul has hope that all the nations are going to get brought in. So what is the difference then between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? The difference is not that Gentiles can now be saved or know God. That was always part of the plan. That was always part of the game. The difference is that now Gentiles can be priests. That's the New Covenant glory. Before the New Covenant, only the Levites could be priests. In the New Covenant, He has made us a kingdom of priests to our God. Isaiah chapter 66, Isaiah speaks of God gathering priests and Levites. Let's see. To the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory... Uh, 66, 19, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Coastlands equals Gentiles, just so you know. Biblically speaking, coastlands is a term used to refer to the Gentiles. And I will set a sign among them from them. Oh, sorry, go to the next one. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Horses, chariots, and litters, mules on doom dairies to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Drome dairy, excuse me. Just as the Israelites bring the grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh, and some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. This is why Brian Rose gets to preach on a Sunday morning. Because of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood is universalized. We are all brought into this family and given this task, as it were, to to be a, a kind of Uh, to to be priests to the world. That is, to bring the good news and the glories of God to our neighbors. So let's look back at our psalm, 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. For great is His steadfast love toward us. Now, think about that. The call goes out. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Why? Why? Because, here's why, because His steadfast love, His covenant love, His merciful kindness is great towards us. Now that's weird. Here's what I would have expected it to say. Praise the Lord, all you nations, for great is His steadfast love toward the nations, toward you. Instead He says, us. 
Remember this term chesed, covenant love. The love that God has promised to His people. The Bible speaks often, Old and New Testament, of the love of God. It is one of His most commonly mentioned, if you will, attributes. There are even a number of hymns just dedicated to singing about the love of God, right? Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Or this one. Could the ink with oceans fill? Were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And there are basically two human reactions, broadly speaking, when we grasp the love of God. One is astonishment, right? Amazing love. How can it be? For, oh my God, it found out me. The other is a kind of fear that it might depart, right? Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and so on. That's the reason why His faithfulness endures forever. So that we never have to ask the question, please don't take your covenant love off of me. So return to the text. The point of the first half of verse 2 is that the love of God for His people preaches about that God to those who are not yet His people. Because this is an otherworldly kind of love. We tend to think of love, <laughs> especially perhaps with June on the way, we tend to think of love. I mean, love is a word that really gets abused and thrown around. And, and in our present cultural moment, we tend to think of love as that which simply accepts us as we are and declare ourselves to be. We are almost too afraid to imagine a love that draws us in and transforms us into what we never thought we could be. This is a love that guards us and guides us, protects us, and strengthens us. In fact, the Hebrew phrase that is translated great toward us, his, his, his uh, steadfast love is great toward us. In Hebrew, it carries the sense of overshadowing or watching over. Literally, the psalmist is saying, his steadfast love towers over us. And we walk in the comfort of its expansive shadow. So we sing this to the nations, right? I'm saying the Lord Jesus wants us to sing this to the nations, to invite them to come and praise him, not because we are worthy, but because his steadfast love is great toward us. His steadfast love is great toward us. We're not saying, come praise the Lord, all you nations, so that you can be as well-behaved and as, as, as gentle-hearted and as sweet as us. No, we're saying, come and praise the Lord, because if you want to know what it means to be fully known and fully loved, then come and know this God. This is why, by the way, confession of sin is so important. What we do in our worship service when we confess our sins what that is doing is it's preaching the love of God to those around us, right? It's preaching the love of God, right? It's like we're saying, do you want to know how great the love of God is? Just listen to what He forgives. I'm about to list it for you. I'm about to confess it. And then, and then you, you listen to this God who forgives even me. This is why our love for others is important, right? Why love your neighbor is so important. Because it reveals the love of God. 
to those who don't yet know it. This is why even your testimony is very important, beloved. You should know how to give your testimony, right? I mean, you should, you should be able to have a sense where you can recite your testimony and share it with you. Now, I want to be clear. Your testimony is not the gospel, right? The gospel is when you talk about Jesus, who He is, what He's done, right? Uh, life, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, coming again, etc., in glory, right? That's the gospel. The gospel is not your testimony, though God willing, your testimony includes the gospel, right? I do remember once, and I say this to my shame, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely keeping that preaching rule. Uh, if you're going to give an illustration, make sure you're not the hero of your own story. It's a, it's a good preaching rule they teach in seminary. Don't be, make sure Jesus is the hero of your story. Well, this story is just don't be like me, okay? I remember once uh, during very, 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 very early in kind of the ordination exam process, uh, I was asked to give my testimony before a, a committee, and I was so nervous, right? I just, I'm sitting down before this committee of, of, uh, of, of who are going to grill me on all these different matters, and that was only like the first or second step in this whole trial of ordination thing, and I sat down, and so I just, I kind of admit, I was, I was unprepared. I, I rattled off my testimony as best I could, and one of the, one of the committee members said, uh, actually, I'll, I'll take some of the shame off me. There were three of us in the room being examined, and all three made the same mistake. So all three of us got addressed together, which is so much worse, right? And he said, this fellow said, all three of you told uh, interesting stories. They included uh, when you were called to ministry. They included, uh, you know, what the sort of home you grew up in. They included your sort of denominational journeys, right? None of you started with I'm a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. That's not a testimony. That's a nice story. And get out of here with it. Oops. <laughs> right, got it. Yeah, okay, right. Salvation, really important. Hello to a testimony. So don't make the same mistake I did, right? I've never forgotten it, obviously. It's, it's sort of born its way into my heart. And now whenever I talk testimony, I always start there. And so this is why, but this is why our testimonies are important, right? Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all, all you peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. Then look at so the rest of verse 2. The faithfulness, and the faithfulness of Yahweh, the faithfulness of Yahweh endures forever. So the first reason we're given for the nations to come in and worship this God is great is his steadfast love toward us. The second reason is because his faithfulness endures forever. Now, I don't want us to overthink this word, but I don't want us to underthink it either. In many ways, this is just a restatement of what's already been said. Saying great is his love and his faithfulness is great enough to last forever are two ways of kind of getting at the same thing. This Hebrew word actually, I've already told you, has some fluidity to it. The most literal meaning of, of what's translated faithfulness here is firmness or solidness. So you can sort of see why some translations have handled it uh, faithfulness and some have handled it truth. The idea is the Lord's word, his truth, his faithfulness, his promises endure forever. And perhaps you can see when you think about it for a minute why that would be part of an appeal to, to the nations, to the Gentiles, to come and worship the God of Israel. Because the heathen gods, while they were certainly powerful, the stories tell, they were not at all faithful. The heathen gods often had multiple wives and cheated on them for heaven's sake. 
In the pagan systems, the reason why you offered up sacrifices was because your God was probably in a bad mood. You needed to put him in a better mood so that he might think about helping you out. Contrast that with the proclamation that this God who made heaven and earth is faithful and steady and full of covenant love to the very end. And that got me thinking, if I was a psalmist, right? I'm not about to attempt the glories of, say, Psalm 119, longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses of alphabetized glory. I'm going to write the shortest psalm in the whole Bible, it's over almost as soon as it starts, so what am I, I going to say? Right? In a psalm that is the length of a commercial ditty, what do I want to convey in a few short words to the nations? That His love is great and that His faithfulness lasts forever. Why? Well, I mean, if you think about it, those are the two things you're likely to doubt when life gets really hard. When life gets hard, when your heart gets broken, when you have to bear an affliction you didn't plan on, when you have to trust God in a set of circumstances you do not like, did not ask for, do not want, do not understand, your heart in its unguarded moments will be tempted to cry out, steadfast love, merciful kindness, great toward me, where? And what you need is the melodies of this psalm echoing in your head. Yes. Yes, it is. This is so hard for us. Again, we, in our present cultural moment, tend to define love as making people feel comfortable rather than helping them to be strong or virtuous. We tend to think of love as keeping people satisfied with where they are rather than calling them to a glory they have not yet had the guts to imagine. And the people of God, when they call out to the nations to come and worship the King, the song is, this is God's steadfast love and it towers over us. And so this call is indeed a call, but it's also a command, right? The call to come and see is also a command to come and join. Come and join the feast. And Jesus Christ indeed fulfills this psalm because he's drawing all the nations to his throne. I told, you that er, er, uh, I told you earlier in the sermon that in the temple, there was this area called the court of the Gentiles, right? It was where the Gentiles were supposed to come and worship Yahweh, come and worship God. The existence of the space itself is a proclamation that God was always meaning to bring them in. In Jesus' day, he and his disciples strolled into the court of the Gentiles, right? sometimes called the outer court. The only problem was there weren't any Gentiles. You know what there was? Animals. They were buying and selling. Right? The Jews had filled up the court of the Gentiles with animals and had squeezed the Gentiles out of the very space that God had set apart for them in order that they might be brought in. And so, dear saints, let us be clear. Because you remember what happened. It's like one of the few times in the gospel where Jesus gets white-hot anger. So let's be clear. Nothing will arouse the anger of Jesus against His own 
Like when we attempt to exclude people from the family of God because they don't look or sound like we do. This is why we say, doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. If you come in repentance, hating your sin, you can rest in His love. You know why? Because great is His steadfast love toward us. If you wonder whether He can actually cleanse you from that sin because you think it's inseparable from who you are, you need to hear that His faithfulness, His truth endures forever and is not intimidated by your sin or your sense of its intensity. But it might take Him forever, Brian. It might take Him forever to work the sin out of me. Fine. Forever is exactly how long He's going to keep at it. It will pass, or you will pass, one or the other. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. Right? That's what we call it. Cleansing of the temple. He chases out the animals and the money changers. Why? What was He saying? (laughs) He was saying... Where are my Gentiles? <laughs> They're supposed to be in here and all I see are animals and money changers. We need to clear out the room and fill it up with some foreigners. What did he say right after chasing them all out? Do you remember? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus was angry because the whole mission of God in the Old Testament had been perverted. And so I thought it really fitting to come to this psalm on Pentecost Sunday. When the Holy Spirit descends, fills up the disciples, they go out breaking down the curse of Babel, crossing over the language barriers so that every man hears the gospel in his own dialect, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea to the ends of the earth. And so the call goes out. To Rapids Parish, to America, to China, to Japan, to Lebanon, until the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of Jesus our Savior are heard in every language of man. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples, for great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness, the steady truth of our Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, our Father, for these words and for the mission that you have set before us. It is not a new mission. It is a mission that stretches back to the promises you gave to Father Abraham. Indeed, in awe we reflect on this reality that one of those stars had been lit for us. And so, as we've been brought into this covenant, grant indeed that our churches would be packed so full of glory and singing and Deuteronomic blessing that as Paul says, that the Jews might be jealous of all that God is doing. And so, Lord, give it to us not only to sing these words, but to long to see the nations brought in. Thank you, Lord, that we ourselves have been brought into this covenant, a kingdom of priests who are God forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.